Father, I pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit to uh, remove the veils of darkness that are in our minds and in our hearts, sin and ignorance that creep in there and, and threaten to root out your word before we even hear it. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word so that we may be more faithfully your people, so that we may follow your Son. In the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. All right, here's the scene. There's a young couple in their very first year of marriage. And as often happens in marriage, these two soon find that their families that they grew up in had, had grown up with kind of different guidelines, different uh, principles that govern their, their lives as a family. Jim and Heather found this out through a laundry day that turned out pretty poorly. So it started off very innocuously. Heather was going to go and, and do a load of white. So she put them in there, uh, ran the wash, and was expecting them to come out nice and beautiful and white. She was going to hang them up on a line. It was going to be a great day. But what she didn't know that was in one of Jim's white shirt pockets, there was a black permanent marker that had managed to go into the load with everything else. And so when she pulled the load out, rather than these nice, brightly, freshly washed whites, she had something resembling this, right? Black spots on white. It looks, it looks cute on a Dalmatian, but it doesn't look cute when you're, all of your white clothes suddenly are spotted with black. And for a young couple starting off with finances being very tight, you can imagine the tension this caused in their relationship. The blame pretty quickly started. Heather was very clear who was at fault here. In her family growing up, the person who put their clothes into the laundry pile was responsible to clear out all their pockets. Everyone did this. Her father, every single time he put a shirt or a pair of pants into the laundry, he would check for coins or chapstick or markers or pens or anything else. He certainly would never have done that. So that's the right way of doing laundry. Every person's responsible for taking the stuff out. Every person is responsible. That's the right way to do laundry. Jim was at fault, clearly. But Jim saw it a little bit differently. See, in his family growing up, the person who actually put the load into the washer was the one who was responsible for clearing out all the pockets. So his mother, every single time she did the laundry, would check every single pocket and make sure there's no coins, no chapstick, no pens, no markers, so clearly, Heather's at fault. This was the right way to do it. The right way to do it is that the person who actually puts it into the machine is responsible for the laundry. Heather was wrong. It's Heather's fault. So how do you decide who's right and who's wrong? It's not that easy, is it? I mean, Jim and Heather were both influenced by their backgrounds. Each had their own idea of the right way to do laundry and the wrong way to do laundry. I'm guessing from the little smiles I'm seeing here and there that people have had these kind of conversations with their spouses before. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. So how do you decide who's right? Or maybe it's not so important to determine who's right. Maybe there's something more important here than who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Now, this is actually a true story about Jim and Heather. These are the people who did our, our premarital counseling class when, I was, uh, when Emily and I were preparing to be married. Uh, as it happens, divine justice prevailed in this case. And the very next week, Jim was doing laundry. So he was the one putting it into the machine. And Heather had accidentally left uh, one of those kind of petroleum-based lip balm things in the pocket of one of her pants. And she didn't take it out before she put it in the laundry bin. And so she didn't take it out of her pocket. Jim didn't take it out of the pocket when he put it into the machine. 
another whole load of laundry ruined with the roles completely reversed, with the, you know, each person not playing by the rules of their own family. So they just kind of cried and laughed and threw their hands up and say, well, okay, there's nothing we can do about this. It's hopeless. Our different backgrounds and personalities shape the way we think about right and wrong. They shape the way we think about the right way to do things, the wrong way to do things, the, the right behaviors, the wrong behaviors, the right actions, the wrong actions. And it happens that those are different from those around us. Other people have different ideas of the right way and the right action and the right behavior. And if you believe this, this actually even happens within the church. There are even differences among Christians about the right way to do things and the right kind of attitudes, the right kind of behaviors, and the wrong kind of attitudes and behaviors and actions. So what happens when that does happen in the church, when there are disagreements over over how things should be done the right way or the wrong way? Well, Paul's been walking us through in the past couple chapters, Romans 12 and Romans 13 here, what it means to live a life that's transformed by the gospel, totally transformed by the gospel, shaped by the gospel. And now he's going to address a particular issue that the Roman congregation is having. So remember, this was written a couple thousand years ago to a particular church in Rome, in the capital of the Roman Empire. And Paul knows that there's something going on here. There's a source of contention here, a source of division. There's two different groups that have different ideas of the right way to behave. And he's going to address it in chapter 14 here. So what happens when Christians disagree on important but disputed matters? What happens? Romans 14. Uh, If you haven't turned there already, I invite you to turn there. It's found on page 1,124 of your pew Bibles. Romans 14, verses 1 through 23 this morning. So to give you an idea of what's going on, first we're going to get an overview of what the issue is, what the two sides are, and then we're going to see Paul's instructions to one group and then his instructions to the other group, the other side. So that's where we're going this morning. We start off with what is happening in this church in Rome. Look at Romans 14, verses 1 and 2. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So this is the presenting problem. It's about food, more or less, right? It's omnivores and, and vegetarians. Now, before you quickly kind of go in your mind to the contemporary issues of vegetarianism, veganism, food supply, all those kind of things, you have to set those aside because we need to understand what Paul is specifically addressing here because there's a different context here that that plays into why these people are only eating vegetables and why others are thinking it's okay to eat anything. It's likely that these people who were only eating vegetables were doing so for the sake of ritual purity. Coming out of a Jewish background, food food purity was a very, very important thing for God's people, especially when they were living in exile, not in the promised land that God had given them in Israel. So to a congregation in Rome, living in this pagan context, food purity was one of the two real most obvious identifying markers for true Jewish people, people who actually were trying to follow God. It was food purity, and it was Sabbath observation. So they didn't work on Saturdays, and they didn't eat the same things that the pagans ate. This was how they showed that they were good, faithful Jews. They were obeying God's law through Moses. This is a a great identifying marker. And and really, the the heroes of of the faith in this kind of a context, in in a context of a pagan environment, the heroes of the faith were those who maintained their purity in these situations. So think about Daniel. Daniel is one of the great heroes of the Bible, right? Famous for the lions then and all these things. Daniel starts off, the book of Daniel starts off with a concern about food. Chapter 1, verse 8. 
Daniel's living in this pagan context, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And the official doesn't want to get in trouble, so he kind of pushes back and says, well, what if you're not as healthy if you only eat vegetables? Daniel proposes a solution. He says, test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance and see. So this is the kind of concern that these, these Christians in Rome have. They're living in this pagan context in Rome. They don't want to eat food that's been perhaps offered to an idol or it hasn't been prepared in a kosher manner. They don't want to defile themselves with this food. They're seeing Daniel as kind of their hero. That's the kind of line that they want to make. Faithfulness to God, clear faithfulness to God, not being defiled by food. They're going to just eat vegetables, just drink water. That's what they're going to do for the sake of purity. So we need to understand that for Jews who had come to follow Jesus, this is a big deal. This isn't just kind of a, a little minor hang-up that they have that they just need to get over. This is something that's, that's at the core of what they believe it means to be faithful to God. This is what obedience to God looks like when you're in a pagan culture, in a pagan context. So they decided it was better to not eat meat. So that's the one group. On the other side, there were these Christians in Rome who were probably really the majority of Christians in Rome. They didn't see a problem with eating meat. They understood from the teaching of Jesus that, that purity comes from the heart. It's purity doesn't come from, or impurity doesn't come from what you eat and kind of defiled by food. They can point back to a great proof text, Mark 7. Jesus is addressing the idea of, of food, and, and he says, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out the body. And Mark adds parenthetically, In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So it's clear here that that food isn't really a huge issue for those who are followers of Jesus. Cleanness comes from the heart. And for those who are purified by Jesus, food is just something that kind of enters and leaves the body. It's it's an inconsequential thing, relatively speaking. Food doesn't make you impure. They understand this, and so they're going to eat anything. Interestingly, Paul sides with the people who eat anything. He sides with the omnivores. So he actually says in the first couple verses there that people who eat only vegetables are those who are weak in faith. In other words, they haven't understood the full implications of the gospel when it comes to this area. They don't yet understand what happened when Jesus came. And very clearly in verse 14, which we'll see in a moment, but I'll read it now, he lays his position out. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, These people are fundamentally wrong. There's a right side to this and there's a wrong side to this. These Christians who think that they need to maintain some kind of purity as under the law of Moses when it comes to food, they're fundamentally wrong about this. They've missed some of the implications of the gospel here. This is not about ritual purity when it comes to food anymore. So Paul is saying that these other people who are eating everything, they are fundamentally right about the gospel. Okay, now that changes the opening story, doesn't it? It changes the situation from that. In that situation, as far as I can tell, the laundry situation, there's no right and wrong way to do it, right? It's not like it's the God-ordained way for for each person who puts their laundry into the the chute to check their pockets, and and it's not the God-ordained way for the person who puts the laundry in there to check their pockets. I mean, there's not really a right way and a wrong way there. But here, there is a right way and a wrong way. There's one group who's right about the implications of the gospel and one who's wrong about what it means to live out the gospel when it comes to food. But even though that is true, Paul doesn't just say to the one group, you're right, you're wrong, you guys who are wrong, get on board with those who are right. 
He's pushing us to see that there's something more important than deciding who is right in this particular conflict in the Roman church. So this is what he says. This is the overview, verse 3, the instructions to each side. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So each group gets its own instructions. We're going to uh, look at these in turn. First, the, the kind of more traditionalists, the, the conservative ones, the ones who, who think that they need to maintain some sort of purity. To them, the underlying message is you cannot judge those other Christians. We could kind of subtitle this section, this is the right way to be wrong. So there's a wrong way to be wrong, and there's a right way to be wrong. This is the right way to be wrong. Now put yourself in, in their position. What's your natural response when you have a conviction against something? So you think doing that thing is a, is a wrong thing, and then you see someone else do it. Well, you judge them, right? They're a sinner. They're doing the wrong thing. I have a conviction against that. They're doing something wrong. They're a sinner. But Paul says there's no room for that. Again, picking up in verse 3. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. So Paul is telling these people with the, the stricter rules, the stricter scruples, that they can't judge other people. That's not an option for them. These Christians can't judge other Christians who don't share their scruples because they're not their master. Those other Christians have one master, one Lord, I'm not it, so I can't judge someone else. Only the master is the one whose opinion really matters. Every Christian is a servant of Jesus, and so Jesus' opinion is what really matters. Now, this is a really important step, and this is a key theme in the whole passage here. Everything you do as a Christian is done in service to God. There's no part of life that's outside of the sphere of what it means for you to be a follower of Christ. You have one master, and everything you do must flow out of that. So it's a lot more than just food purity in, in mind here. Look at the next paragraph here, 5 through 9. Paul is building this argument. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. See, Paul is pushing us far beyond issues of food, food purity and Sabbath regulations and all these things. He's pushing us much deeper that. He's saying these decisions that we make in our everyday life, those are not matters of personal preference. The decisions you make regarding food and regarding Sabbath and, and holy days and all those things, those are decisions that are made because you have a master. Jesus is your master, and so everything you do, every single part of your life is lived under that umbrella. You have one master. So the first step for these people who are, are, are more kind of tighter scruples, the more traditionalists, the first step for them in, in being able to not judge 
is understanding that these other people have a master and I'm not their master. Like me, they have a call to obey Jesus. Jesus is their master. He's the one who will determine if they stand or fall. Paul then pushes it ahead to see a second step here to how not judging is a possibility for these people. So verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat with them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Judging is simply not our business. Every single person will be judged, and we know that is true. And God is the only one who can judge and who is the rightful judge. You don't have to judge other people because you know that God is the one who takes care of the business of judging. Your fellow Christian who you are tempted to judge will have to give an answer before God for their actions. And so will you. And that reality means that, that of course, I'm not going to judge. I've got no room to judge. I'm comically incompetent to serve as a judge for my brother or my sister. God alone is judge. So this, this is what that first group needs to hear, that the vegetarians, the kind of traditionalists or the more conservative ones here, they need to hear that they must not judge others. That's the right way to be wrong. Don't judge other people. You aren't their master. You are not their judge. So do not, com- uh, do not impose your convictions about this issue on other Christians. That's what the first group needs to hear. The second group, the more progressive or more liberal group here, needs to not despise those who have different scruples in them. This could be called, uh, subtitled, the right way to be right. So there's a wrong way to be right, and there's a right way to be right. But put yourself in their position. You understand that the gospel frees you to do a particular thing. And when you see someone else who thinks that the gospel doesn't allow them to do that, they haven't been fully liberated by the gospel in that particular area, what's your natural response to them when they have stricter rules than you? Think, oh my goodness, just loosen up a little bit. They're a prude. But Paul says there's not room for that either. That our very outset, he's saying, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Again in verse 3, the one who eats everything must not show contempt the one who does not. And again, there's no room for this. Those who are rightly liberated by the gospel to be able to eat anything, they're always going to be tempted to think that those other people who haven't got there yet are less good than them. They're less people than them, less liberated by the gospel than them. They're always going to think of them, those people with stricter convictions, as being somehow less than them. But there's no room for this. And, and that's grounded in the same reality as, as the first uh, point for the other ones. Those other people, these, these people with tighter convictions, they're trying to obey God. Their task is the same as yours. They have one master, and they're trying to please that one master. The bottom line for, for all of us is obeying God. Each one of us is living as a servant, serving our master, Jesus. And if you see someone else who's, who's genuinely trying to do this, they're genuinely trying to obey their master, genuinely trying to obey Jesus, well, how can you really despise them then? How can you really show contempt for them? They are on the same path that you are with the same master. They're trying to live out their faith just like you are. How can you show contempt for them? 
Paul's going to push this group further to see that even though they're fundamentally right, they have an obligation to others. So look at this paragraph here, starting in verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. Okay, there's a lot going on in that paragraph, but let's just draw out a couple things here. Paul is, first of all, reiterating that these people are fundamentally correct in their thinking. They understand the implications of the gospel as far as food purity is concerned. No food in itself is impure. They can eat anything. It doesn't matter what you eat or drink. But what does matter is that each person make the decision to obey their master. And that is where even being right can cause others harm. So you can be fundamentally correct in your understanding of the ethical implications of the gospel, and you can totally fail to follow Jesus with how you treat others. Our freedom in Jesus, Paul is saying, must be used for the good of the church. Because in the end, it's not about those kind of liberties and freedoms. It's not about what you eat and what you drink and what you do on a certain day of the week. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. It's about the things that God's Spirit is working in your life. It's about God's kingdom. That's the issue here, not these kind of secondary issues of food, drink, and all this stuff. In other words, my job is not to convince other people that I am right. Even when I am right, that's not my job. It's to build others up in their faith. Even when you are in the right, and even when your fellow Christian is in the wrong, your concern is to pursue peace and to try to build them up in their faith, to help them grow, to follow Jesus more faithfully. And there's something of a twist here in these, in these uh, verses that I think is very interesting. I mean, Paul is saying he is convinced, 100% convinced, that Christians are free to eat anything without being defiled. But he says that those who are not convinced of the same thing would actually be sinning if they did it. Two verses show this. Verse 14. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. That's about as strongly as he can say that statement. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. With the last verse, verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. 
So Paul's saying, fundamentally, it doesn't matter what you eat. But for some people, eating certain things is a sin. So how can he say both of these things? Food doesn't really matter. You can eat anything. And yet, for some people, food does matter, and eating it would be a sin for them. How can he say that in the same sentence? Well, it's, it's about obeying the master. So the danger that these stronger Christians have, those who understand the full liberation of the gospel, the danger they have is to trying to liberate their, their fellow Christians who have tighter scruples on this and actually lead them to disobedience to God actually lead them on the path of sin in an attempt to liberate them. Think about it this way. Emily's family had this, this big Rottweiler dog when she was growing up, a beautiful uh, black uh, Rottweiler named Gertie. And there was one thing that Gertie was very, very clear about. Her master was Emily's dad. Emily's dad was the boss. That was the one thing that Gertie knew without doubt. He was the one who set the rules. He was the one who punished. He was the one who rewarded. She was charged with making Emily's dad happy. That's her job. So one of the rules that Gertie had was that she was not allowed in the upstairs part of their family's house. She didn't even test the limits of this. She was well-trained, understood. If I go upstairs, I'm disobeying my master. I don't want to do that. I'm going to stay downstairs. Well, Emily was watching a movie upstairs, and it was kind of one of these sappy dog movies. She thinks it's probably Old Yeller or something like that. And, and she got to thinking about her dog, and she thought, you know, it would be really nice to kind of bring the dog up here and kind of snuggle with the dog as I watch the movie, kind of enhance the movie experience and all these things. And she's a good girl, so she went and asked her parents, can I bring Gertie upstairs with me to watch the movie? And they said, yeah, okay, this, this one time we can do that, that's fine. So Emily goes and gets Gertie, and, and she kind of brings her to the stairs, and, and Gertie starts to panic because she's not supposed to do that. She's not supposed to go upstairs. And, and here's Emily, this little girl, is dragging this huge dog up the stairs against its will and finally plops down in front of the TV and turns it back on watching the movie. But the, the poor dog is miserable, looking around, afraid of getting caught. She knows she's in trouble. She knows this is the wrong thing. And Emily finally let the poor dog go. She took her hand away, and the dog just scooted back as, as quickly as possible back downstairs. And Emily's thinking, what on earth is going on here? There's nothing wrong with that. My dad said it's okay. I asked him, you're allowed to be here. Just enjoy the liberation of something that you've never experienced before. But to the poor dog, this is the shame and the fear of disobeying her master. I mean, this is what the danger of the, the meat-eating, liberated Christians in Rome. They're in danger of dragging those weaker Christians through that experience. They think it's going to be liberating. They think it's freeing. You can eat anything. Meat tastes pretty good, it turns out. But, but no, they've got these scruples about it. So for them, it's actually disobeying their master to follow someone else in that path. It's not a liberating experience. It can actually be a deeply damaging experience for that weaker Christian because they're not doing it in faith insisting on the rightness of their position and universalizing it would cause great spiritual harm to these others because it would be to mandate behavior that's not done in faith. It's mandating behavior of someone else that for them is not obedience to Jesus. They don't understand that they're allowed to do that with Jesus as their master. And so for them, it's sin. The wrong way to be right is to try to convince others and try to sort of apply social pressure to them and maybe kind of propagandize them so that they will do what they don't yet believe is acceptable. That's the wrong way to be right. That can only hurt the church. It can only hurt the beautiful work that God has already done in their lives. 
The right way to be right, Paul says, is to be fully convinced in your mind. If you think that you can eat anything, be fully convinced of that and do that to the Lord. Do that as your service to your master, pleasing to your master. Be fully convinced in your own mind, but don't, don't try to push that on someone else. Don't, don't, try, don't try to universalize your understanding or your, uh, your scruples on a disputed matter. So this is, the, this is the situation in Rome. It's a particular uh, point of conflict at this particular point in history. To the one side who are, who are fundamentally wrong in their thinking that, that the gospel does not allow them to eat anything, Paul's saying, don't judge those other people. You're not their master. You're not their judge. And to the other group that's fundamentally right, he's saying the right way to be right is to be fully convinced and not despise those other people, but try to build them up. Okay, so this was, you know, 5,000 miles away and 2,000 years ago. Totally different circumstances today. What do we do with a passage like this? We could say, okay, well, this is about food and drink and those kind of things, right? It, it addresses these issues, so, so that's how we're going to apply it today. So we could say, well, vegetarians and vegans, those who don't drink alcohol, they are wrong. And so the application of this is that the gospel frees us to eat anything. That's, the, that's how we're going to apply this. Or we could actually go the opposite route and say, if, if something I could do might cause my brother or sister to stumble, I'm not going to do it. So none of us are going to eat meat, none of us are going to eat animal products, and none of us are ever going to drink alcohol. That's the application of this text, right? We could do that either way. And it's true that this passage speaks to those issues, but there's a problem lurking beneath the surface of both of those. It's the problem of legalism. This is a form of legalism. It's, it's universalizing rules and attitudes and behaviors that are not central to the gospel as if they are central to the gospel. So it's a disputable matter that you're treating as if it is gospel law. This is the only way for Christians to behave or to live. So I, we've been thinking a lot about uh, education and, and uh, the, the different choices, public school, private school, home school, and all these things. Well, this can become an issue among Christians that's a legalistic kind of thing. You'd say, oh, well, well a Christian must send their, school, their child to a Christian school if one's available. That's what all Christians must do. That's what you've been convinced in your own mind of, and so you're trying to universalize that to others. Another Christian would say, no, you've got to send your kids to a public school. Otherwise, you're just abandoning that system and you're abandoning a whole mission field. So all Christians must send their, their kids to public schools. And it becomes a legalistic kind of thing, right? But that just kills gospel community because it puts something that's secondary, an act of obedience to Christ either way, but actually has divergence of opinion. It's putting something secondary at the forefront. And that means that the gospel can't be at the forefront. This is the, one of the reasons we have so many churches in our community and really across the U.S. People are putting their little idea of the right way to follow God ahead of what is actually central. And that's what Paul is pushing us to see. The really important part here is obeying your master, single-minded obedience to Jesus. That is really the heart of this passage. I mean, that's why these people can't judge others, right? Because the, the other people have a master. It's not me, it's Jesus. So what each of us is called to do is to live our whole life devoted to following Jesus. We are called to obey him. That is the one thing. That's the primary thing. And the secondary thing is seeing that other people, we've been put in this community of other people who have the same call, to obey 
Jesus. And so our call is to build them up. We are to obey our one master, and we are called to build up his people, the church. Those are really the underlying uh, applications of this text. Follow your master single-mindedly, wholeheartedly in every situation, and understand that you are here for the edification, for the building up of these other Christians around you. You aren't fighting for your way. You are fighting to obey Jesus and to help them obey Jesus too. Knowing that Jesus is master and knowing that Jesus died for other people helps us discover that some of the disagreements we have over these kind of disputed things are really not that important. When things are disputed, when they're not essential, the important thing isn't to fight that we, to show that we are the right ones here. It's to obey God and to encourage others to obey him. Even when their behavior in obeying him might look different than what ours does. Even when we are 100% right on the issue. God's work in building up the church is more important than you winning the day in an ethical debate. See, Paul is showing this, that this is so important. The unity of the church, the unity of God's people is too important to be destroyed by these divisions over, over really disputable, non-essential items. More important than being right is obeying Jesus and helping others obey him too. So yeah, you have your convictions about certain behaviors and actions and attitudes and implications of the gospel, and that's fine. Be fully convinced of those and follow Jesus in those. But where there's dispute among people of God of what that looks like to live out, you are not allowed to universalize those scruples into gospel law. What we are trying to do here at Trinity is to build a community of people who follow Jesus as the one thing. That's the heart of what we're trying to do here. We are trying to follow Jesus. If we are going to do that, we need to allow these kind of disputes and arguments to to go on with, with good, healthy debate sometimes. But when those start to tear other people down, those have to be put aside. There is no room for that. We are here to follow Jesus and keep that the central part of who we are and what we do. And when we do that, we find that of these other people around us who are following Jesus with us, these are good people. God is doing incredible work in their heart. And we're able to praise him and trust him for doing that. But really, this is not possible, this kind of community life, this is not possible unless we actually are rooted in the gospel and understand it. The way you behave towards others will show how the gospel has rooted or not rooted in your heart. So in other words, your action towards others will always be filled with competition and jealousy and fear and division and distrust if your heart remains unregenerate. Because that's where it really comes from. That's where these attitudes come from. They come from a heart that is self-centered. But when God actually works in our hearts and shows the truth of who we are, that we, when we really understand the gospel, that we were people who were enemies of God, rebellious against him, we actually deserved hell. We really did deserve hell. That's who we were And then God shows you what he has done for you in Christ, that he has removed that sin from you, that he has reconciled you to himself, that you are his child. Well, then suddenly you don't have to keep fighting for you and for your rights and for your liberties. You're able to see that your one thing, the one thing you are called to do is to follow Jesus. 
And then you're free to stop these little bickers and, and quarrels and stuff like that. F- free to build up the body of Christ. Because you understand that it's not about eating and drinking all these things. It's about God's kingdom. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy. It is then when we understand the gospel that we are able to trust that God is doing a beautiful work in the hearts of these people who we disagree with. And he's doing a beautiful work in our heart too. That is what we are about here. We are about following Jesus with everything we have and about trying to help each other do the same. May God help us. Please pray with me. God, it is so difficult to do this kind of thing. It's so hard when we do have different attitudes and actions. We, we sometimes think it would be so much easier to, to be a, a church full of people who had the exact same opinions and the exact same behavior patterns. We, we all believe that this, this was a good thing, this is a bad thing, this is a good thing, this is a bad thing. We lay out the list, and that's what we want. And you've called us to this group of people who, who sometimes is maddeningly different than us, and they have different backgrounds and different personalities, and all that plays into what they think is right and what they think is wrong. Father, I pray that you would so impress upon us the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would be free to follow your son, to follow Jesus with everything we have and so that we're able to give up on all of those personal rights and squabbles and to build up your church in faith. Even if those other people look different than us. Even if those other people are occasionally wrong in their thinking. Even if those people are way too strict in their rules even if those people appear to us to be way too liberal. Father, work your gospel into our heart and build us into your community to reach the area around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.